Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Cheryl Hersha and her sister, they were put through military training, weapons training. I was a terrible marksman. I'm so glad I was a terrible marksman. They train assassins. I know that's, it sounds like it's coming out of a movie, but I can explain, I can explain how you do that. I can, I mean, if you take a young child and four or five times a year, you strap that child in a chair and torture them, you're going to get that child to do pretty much what you want. You have used a few words that are new to us and our listeners, and I'm going to let you deal with the words in order you want to, but you've talked about contractors and you've talked about trigger words and you've talked about handlers. And I know from your perspective, those have different meanings than they would to me. So could you explain what contractors and handlers are? So when I say it's just the way they set up these programs, they can be highly compartmentalized. You don't want one person working for you to know the whole scope of what's happening. And that's documented. We know that from the MKUltra documents. They had a lot of civilians that they would contract, just regular old academics working in institutions, and they would give them one very small segment of a procedure to do experiments with. And that wouldn't hurt anybody. They would just be, you could carry that out and even publish it, but it would be some piece of another procedure that then they would go and use in the torture lab. So by contractor, a lot of the people carrying out this work were just that. They could be short-term contractors as opposed to personnel who were higher up following individual subjects through various facilities and watching the progress, like my person at uh, NASA. 
of course, there are people higher than that. So I hope that gets to what I mean by contractor. Yeah, I think they're being paid. They have a they have contract with government, right? They're being hired by the government to do this work. Yes, and, uh, under the auspices of benefiting our country. Yes, this okay. is when this was going on. It was the Cold War, and we were trying to. That was the excuse given anyway. We were trying to outdo Russia. Russia had its own programs like this. As far as I know, I've read some documents that. That were released. Okay, handlers. What happens in the labs with the torture, it's conditioning. It's like classical conditioning, reward mm-hmm. and punishment, only the punishment is torture, but the torture also produces fear and other fight or flight responses to a level where you dissociate. And then you get trained or conditioned even further after you're already in that state, in a dissociated state. Okay. So a handler could be like, the, I'm going to use the word babysitter, but they're like the hands-on, they take you where you need to go. And No, I was, oh. yeah, I was getting there. So when they're conditioning you, they associate a trigger cue. It, it can be a, a noise, a set of words. It can be a visual symbol. But when you encounter that in your normative life, so you're not, say you're out in normative life and you encounter that, you're mentally you're going to obey and you're going to switch who, whoever's in control of the body right. and then follow the order, whatever order is implicit in that. So that's what a handler does. A handler keeps track of you. A handler doesn't even have to live in the same city. I've had some handlers that live in other states. And what they do is at this point with me now, because I'm not operational, I mean, they can't use me anymore, but they want to make sure that I don't break down too much of my conditioning and spill the beans like I am right right now. They, they don't want that. So I'll get phone calls. I'll get messages over the computer that have little phrases in them, or maybe they have a sound from a handler. And I've had a couple of handlers that just, they sound like they're reading from a script. Like there's a file somewhere and the handler's just reading the words off of the script. You guys remember when caller ID first came out? Sure. I got a call and it, and I looked at caller ID and it said Los Alamos <laughs> national labs. It said where? Los Alamos national labs. Okay. <laughs> yeah. They're not perfect. They mess up. They leave evidence around. My ex-partner that I was with for 17 years, he, sometimes he would pick up the phone and he'd just hear a tone, mm-hmm. computer-generated tone. Mm-hmm. That's what a handler does. A handler makes sure that you're still obeying. You're still, you haven't broken your conditioning. If you go into therapy, you're not breaking too much of the dissociation. And so- they all can trigger you to do operations. But like I said, I'm not operational anymore. Which means that you're not susceptible to the trigger words or that you have um, you have worked through the, the alter personalities so that you're, what is the word when you're all back together again? I forget what it <laughs> integrated? is. Integrated? Yes. I'm not integrated. What I mean by operational is I'm not going to be sent out on some sort of operation. I'm not going to be sent to some politician to seduce yeah. him so that they can blackmail him. I'm not going to be sent on a courier mission. So yeah. 
my system is too, it's not reliable anymore. I've done enough work in therapy so that it's, my system is just not reliable anymore. I can't risk because I would remember too much. When did it, when did the childhood experimentation stop? How old were you? 14 or 15. Although I'm thinking, I'm not quite sure working through, I'm not quite finished working through that time in my life because I was spending more and more time with my father. And it's one thing when there's a strange guy in a lab coat that's hurting you. It's another thing when it's your father. It's been, um, it's taken longer to get to those memories. I recently, I've been working on a series of memories from when I was 14 and I was taken to Chicago and they were using a meat plant packing plant and they had a virtual assembly line of subjects, girls my age going on in that plant. And they used the animal carcasses um, to torture us. And yeah, it was, it's, it was sickening. So I'm still working on that, but they do get to a point where, okay, your system is pretty well set. And this usually happens in early to mid teens. And they do, then they start with conditioning you for security. So if for some reason your system starts to break down and the memories of the lab start leaking into normative or day-to-day life, like when you have to go to school, then there's a little security, there's some security conditioning where you report on yourself. So you build in that kind of conditioning around that age, and then you're ready to be used. So what happened when you were about 14 and did your family move again or did you stay in the normative world, as you call it? So we left Birmingham. We moved back to Detroit in January of 79. And we were there only for a year. My, My father was traveling all over the world. He was going to China and Mexico and he spent almost a year working in Dusseldorf, Germany. And then he was back home again. He was going to be sent to Cairo, to Egypt. So we, after we moved to Detroit, we were there about nine months. Then, oh, we're going to move to Cairo. And that went on for a few months. And then, no, and we ended up moving to Chicago. So I graduated high school in Chicago. Lynn, when your abuse was happening in Detroit when you were really young, was that always at the pediatrician's office? No, there, there were other... There was that hospital room as well. There were also actual real hospital rooms. So I have a couple of memories when I was in a hospital room. Okay. So they were using just a normal hospital's facility at the time yeah. to do yeah. that. Yep. And I, I remember the exterior of the hospital and I've done that Google, Google Street View. There's a hospital that underwent an extreme renovation. I think that's it. But I don't know for sure. So I don't want to say the hospital's name. I'd have to go back to Detroit and drive around and look. I don't have that in me. <laughs> you were really young then, right? So yeah. that'd be difficult. Yeah. Yeah. When you were moved to Alabama, did all of the abuse then happen in the NASA's government building? No, there were different facilities. When I was an adolescent, I got taken to a doctor at. Sanford University. There's a Sanford University, or is it Sanford with an N? 
because I fell pregnant. And that's another horror story that I don't want to overwhelm your audience with. There were the NASA facilities, um, the annex, and then the main facilities, and then a doctor at Sanford. But as far as the labs, that I think that was it in around Alabama. But there was always the private stuff. So like the family stuff, that the private stuff is going on too. But it changed because we didn't have family in Birmingham. So my father hooked up with some pretty unpleasant people. And occasionally, it didn't happen nearly as often, but occasionally on holidays, we would go to a house. I remember what the house looked like. There would be one of those party, quasi-religious thing where orgiastic drug fields where kids were raped and everyone was doing everything to everybody. Detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, "Is it Renee?" And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. Twenty-three years ago, eighteen-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Lynn, by the time you moved to Alabama, would you say that you were pretty well conditioned? No, they just, I'd had the basics done, but I always been a fighter. I did everything I could. To fight. I am, I have a very strong part of me that never let go of the idea that all of this was wrong. Mm-hmm. They tried to torture that out of me. They actually had a little brainwave signature for it. And I have a name for that part of me. And I still have that part of me. And they didn't get that. No, I wasn't fully conditioned yet. I was highly dissociative. When I went to school, I was very socially awkward. I was not assertive. I had trouble moving my body because I had a lot of somatic pain, but I never said anything about it. I still have a lot of somatic pain. And I knew I felt like an alien compared to the other kids. I would watch the other kids and you know what kids do when they scream and they run around and they flap their arms and they're just being silly. I would stare at them and go, how can they do that? Where did Mm -hmm. they get the idea to move their arm like that? I was at a point where I felt like if I didn't have permission, I couldn't move my hands a certain way or I couldn't certainly couldn't raise my voice. Yeah, but no, they weren't finished with me yet. Did you always remember 
what was going on or was there a certain point into this when you stopped remembering? I don't remember remembering. I remember when I was a tiny kid, I had nightmares. I had a recurring nightmare that actually, it, it never went away throughout my whole childhood, but it was really frequent when I was a young kid and I acted out, I would do weird stuff. I talk about scaring your neighbors again. There were other kids in the neighborhood and I would do weird stuff around them. I don't remember remembering about the labs. I just remember the feelings, the terror, and that I there were creepy men in my life that did creepy things to me. Wasn't I knew I wasn't allowed to remember in the daylight world, in the normative world. So I did I obeyed that rule. But there were some incidences of abuse that I never forgot. And that's because it wasn't my extended family or my parents. It didn't happen in the lab. It happened between some boys that were friends of my brothers and my brother. It happened when I was eight years old. And I that I never forgot. So by the time I went to college, I knew I was a sexual abuse survivor. So I went to therapy. And yeah, I just, I thought, spend a few years in therapy. I'll recover from those incidences. And I'll go on with my life. And that just never really happened. Can you talk to us about what your adult life was like? And I also wanted to ask you, were your parents part of the mind control? So that did they use trigger words and stuff with you as you got older to keep you conditioned? Yes. Yeah. My father was part of this whole thing. In fact, my father helped traffic children. I have memories of being with him in the car and we had kids in the car taking them to, I won't go into that, but my mother, when my mother was taking me, she would be given a script of word to say to me, to keep me conditioned. And my father, I'm sorry about the siren. Can you hear that? That's okay. My father, he knew about my system and he knew how to access, especially my team of alters that were trained for rape. And my father took advantage of that all the time. Yeah. You said you went on operations with him. Do you mean CIA operations? Well, yeah. The trafficking of the children. Okay. So yeah, they, yeah, I went with them. That was in the seventies. It was like a Friday before Christmas and there was going to be a huge ceremony. I think it was in Northwest Georgia and a lot of their politicians. I just heard this. It was like a rumor. I didn't witness. I didn't see anyone I recognized, but I went with them and we had two children with us and they did not come back. Was your dad an official employee of the CIA? No, I don't think so. There's no... There's no way to know because you know what they say. They will not confirm or deny. So what has your adult life been like as you, I'm assuming you're not close to anybody in your biological family. Is that no. correct? That's correct. I cut off contact in my mid twenties, mid to late twenties. My adult life has been up and down. I, so I did manage to go off to college. And so I was functional enough to get through college and when I was there, I did women's studies, <laughs> changed my whole world. And then, of course, I, I knew I was a, an abuse survivor 
from the memories I didn't dissociate. So I worked on that and then got political with it. And I started to become a part of the sexual child sexual abuse survivor movement. And I used my artwork to do shows about child sexual abuse and help educate. And so I got plugged into that whole community. In fact, I think I have an email to snap from the 1990s. Really? When they first formed. Yeah. I talked to the guy. I emailed the guy briefly who, who formed snap. I'd have to look on my floppy disk to find. Yeah. So I, I got, so I was always already telling you guys a little bit about this, but I got into this huge art show in Seattle. I was living in Atlanta at the time and I was with my partner and we came out for the show and it was hugely successful. It was about child sexual abuse. And we decided we were going to move here because the show got offers to travel. We got offers to travel that show across the country and internationally. It was a really powerful show. We got on the news, we got on the radio, we got in the newspaper. It was really powerful. So we moved to Seattle from Atlanta in 91. And, and I started working on the show. But then in a couple of years, that whole false memory campaign hit and our offers dried up and the show went away. My symptoms just kept getting worse and worse. Somatic symptoms, so body symptoms. And I was having, I wouldn't call them flashbacks. They were more like sort of full body memories. And my state just went downhill. For most of my 30s, I didn't work at all. I couldn't work. My symptoms were just too intense. And I also couldn't afford, well, people who know how to treat people like me are few and far between. And they had good therapists, but they, I could only get so far with them. And I just muddled through. I didn't paint a whole lot, but I painted some. And then things really changed. I gradually got better and better. I got, I think I got diagnosed with DID in 90. With, I'm sorry, with what? DID, dissociative identity. Right. Yeah, I got diagnosed uh-huh. in 93, I think, or 94. And I just gradually got better. And then I started seeing my therapist I see now, and he's been helping people like me for 30 years. And that's really important to have somebody who can, who understands this is real. That's first and foremost. And then he's a really good trauma therapist. And yeah. And I started getting better and I left my partner in 2004 and ended up where I am now in this artist community. And then I started to see if I could do things like normal people. I started to see if I could be part of an arts organization and sit on a board meeting, sit in on a board meeting and be functional. (laughs) Tell us about, Lynn, tell us about your art, what kind of art you do. And tell us about the community where you live, because you mentioned earlier that there was something in you that wouldn't let you forget that this was wrong. And it feels to me, I can't empathize. I have compassion, but it almost feels like that's what saved you. And that there are probably many, many people like you who were not as fortunate and are still living in some other parallel universe that doesn't make any sense. But can you tell us about your art and how you developed it? Yeah. Even as a small kid, I showed some ability to draw. So I was, 
I drew a lot. In high school, I won a couple of awards. So it was always in the back of my head that, well, maybe I'll be an artist, even though I was discouraged from it. I was just, I was encouraged to get a real job. People usually say to artists, yeah, I always drew and painted, but what came out in what I would make, it always reflected my dissociation. So it was always figures, figures blending and twisted on top of each other and horrific imagery. So I was never going to have a big successful art career like I wanted because there aren't a lot of people who want to hang really horrific stuff over their couch. But I got into the art community and I've done a lot of other things. I've, I've cured, I ran a couple of small galleries for a number of years. I coordinated studio rentals. I did community, community wide art projects. I started an arts festival a couple of years ago. <laughs> And it only ran for two years, but we blocked off the sidewalk in downtown. We blocked a street in downtown Seattle. And so that was a lot of fun. But I got overwhelmed. It was too much. I overextended myself. And during the same time, I'm still trying to go to therapy and work on torture memories. So yeah, it was too much. And I have now stepped, I haven't done any arts activities now in a few years. All I do now is I work. And I go and recover from those torture memories and break down my conditioning. Is there someplace online that we can look at your artwork? Oh, yeah. I actually have two sites. My, my main art site is lynnshermer.com. And then I have a site that I'm going to be updating. <laughs> it hasn't been updated in 10 years. It's well overdue. And that's linsart.net. And that has more of my, the awful side of my life. It has more of that, but it has uh-huh. some of my journal drawings and explanations about how all this stuff works. Lynn, I'm actually looking on your site right now, though, Lynn. You pronounce your last name as Shermer? Yes. So lynnshermer.com. Yes. And your artwork is so amazing. Like, I'm looking at your drawings right now. and. They just blow my mind away. Kind of gives you an inside look of maybe what you've been through. Some of it is very, I don't even know the vocabulary to describe it. Thanks, Shane. Yeah, it's how I've been able to tell. Because, you know, there aren't, there are very few people who can listen to this. And so my art speaks for me and spoken for me for 30 years. I can definitely Uh see that. Lynn, do you think this kind of conditioning with children is still going on? Yes. What would lead you to think that? Because we still have people where it didn't, there was some flaw in the work, so it doesn't work as well as it should, and they remember. And these are young people still coming forward today, people in their teens and 20s. When did you start remembering? And I'm sorry if you've already touched on this, but I didn't quite catch that. When did you start remembering this specific ultra type of abuse that happened? That's really hard to pinpoint because I had the symptoms. I had flashbacks and ab reactions and somatic symptoms long before I was able, I felt safe enough to process one of the memories. It was many years of building up, but I would say it was around, it would be the late nineties or two thousands. And did you say that you have been punished for talking about this? Oh yeah. Can you 
explain to us what you mean? Yeah. So I, I was part of an art show a few years ago about the stigma, the stigma of mental illness. And my role in that art show was to say, I don't have a mental illness. Horrible things happen to me. I have natural coping responses. And part of the show, it traveled around Seattle a little bit, and we would do artist talks to the public. And it traveled to Seattle City Hall, and I gave a talk there about my history. Afterwards, someone that I thought was a friend started behaving rather strangely. And I don't want to go into the details, but I ended up being abducted. I was on my way home, and I was a perpetrator got in the car with me and hurt me. And that was arranged by a friend, a former friend that I thought was a friend. So this was, yeah, 2015. Oh my. Yeah. So I stopped, I was publishing articles on my other website, WordPress, up until that point. And I just stepped back and then I had to reassess a lot of people in my life. That's another thing is, you know, that feeling when you meet someone and you feel like, oh, I totally get you. It's just an intuitive Mm -hmm. kind of feeling. I've known you my whole life. It feels like I've known you my whole life. And then you fall into friendship. I cannot trust that feeling. I can't trust it. It gets trouble. So I had a few friends that turned out to be not safe. Wow. So I had to cut those friends out of my life. And then the following year, I got a death threat, but that was from a known handler. Yeah. Are these people from your past or are these people who are like younger versions of that? Younger versions and people that I've met over the last, I don't know, five or six years, eight years, maybe. Then what can we do to help protect you from any kind of backlash for being so courageous. I have a few things in place. Have you ever heard of a dead man's letter? (laughs) Yeah. So I I have that. And there is a thought that speaking out is a, can be a kind of protect. If something happens after you speak out, it makes it a little bit more suspicious. I don't know what you guys can do. I think the most important thing here is that the more people who are open to learning about these programs and accept and the biggest hurdle is emotional because you have to think, oh my God, my my tax money has been going towards this. My what is my government doing? Mm -hmm. And a lot of people can't handle that. It's just too much. But the more people who can get close to accepting that, then we might have a chance of actually forcing some sort of action against it. Any action we can take as as advocates for you or for others who are in your situation? I think you're doing it, Gemma. You and Shane are doing it right now. This is starting. It's the ground level. We can't demand hearings for, these are human rights abuses, long 70 years of human rights abuses. Sure. We can't demand hearings on that unless we have enough people to make the demand. So as long as survivors like me are ridiculed and disbelieved, then these crimes continue. Which is all part of the plan to make you not credible. Yep. Linda, last question that I had that I wanted to ask you, you mentioned that you've seen the keepers when you watched it and you learned about the abuse that had been going on there and 
combining that with your knowledge about the MK Ultra program and what type of abuse they were doing, in your mind, do you think that those two events could be related? Yes. Yeah. So what I thought after I had time to calm down and get some clarity and really think about it, my thought was there can be rumors among networks of people. And my thought was Maskell was not running, maybe not an official operation where he was actually contracted. He was running like a kind of side project and he, and it was whoever his contact was to run that side project. They were sloppy, right? They were sloppy and Maskell was sloppy. Burying papers in a graveyard, that's Mm -hmm. sloppy. And that's not something the people that worked on me when I was a kid, that's not something they ever would have done. So it makes me think that there is a tangential connection, perhaps through Richter, or maybe through some colleague of Maskell's who whispered and said, hey, have you heard what they're doing over there? Let's try this or... Or something like that. It's and there was one. He was a psychiatrist or a psychometrist who was who would travel around the Catholic high schools and administer psychological tests. And Maskell was not authorized to be giving these personality tests, but this other guy was. I do think you're right with that, Lynn. I think you're really perceptive. And based on your own experience, it makes a lot of sense because we know that Maskell tried to get grants at Hopkins and was turned down. I think he tried very hard to be a contractor. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yep. There's another thing, and we know that Hopkins and Walter Reed, they're deep in this stuff. And I just, I wanted to offer this. There's a survivor, same, she went through what I went through, who had documentary evidence. And her name is Karen Coleman Wiltshire. She passed away quite a long time ago now, back in the 90s. But she had a transport order from Johns Hopkins to Walter Reed to be experimented on at Walter Reed. And that was in 1965. Yeah, it's pretty rare for us to have any sort of documentation like that. Yeah. And you said her name was Karen Thomas Wiltshire? Karen Coleman. Coleman. Yeah. Is there documentation online that would be available to read if anybody wanted to do that? You know, I don't know if there's anything up about Karen right now. I have that document somewhere in one of my old computers. I have that. So if anyone wants it, I can try to dig it out. Lynn, we want to give you the opportunity to say anything at all that you would like to say to our listeners or about yourself or your life. So the stage is yours. I think if I miss something in my retellings, it's, you know, the specifics of how the conditioning works psychologically. I miss that. But there are places you can read about it. I just want people to know, and I'm going to lose it again. That's okay. I was taken as a three-year-old kid and tortured. And it was funded by by tax money. And I've been tortured and followed my whole life. And I didn't ask for any of that. And I'd really like it if more people started paying attention. And I know it's I know it's hard to pay attention because a lot of this sound quite oh, it sounds out there. And a lot of us don't come across as very credible because can you imagine how credible you would sound after being tortured throughout your childhood 
and right. trafficked and raped, you're not going to, that's another way it stays stuck. What would you recommend if someone listening to you thinks that this happened to them? What would you recommend that they do about it? You have to go to therapy. You, you've got to have, you have to have some sort of safe environment, a way to have a safe relationship with someone where you can learn to trust and work through the trauma. But it's better to work with someone who already knows about this stuff. Just so when you're saying, oh, I remember this room and this other thing, this weird thing in the corner, and they don't look at you like you're just, you know, they've heard it before. So yeah, that's a number one. There's no, you've got to break the conditioning down because you won't be safe until you break that conditioning. And how would they find the right kind of therapist? It sounds like it's a real specialized kind of treatment. It is. And it's not easy to find people. The ISSTD, I guess you could contact them. And what is that? It's the International Something for Dissociative and Traumatic Stress Disorders. <laughs> I'll have to look at it. Yeah, we'll find it, right, Shane? We'll find it. Okay. One question, and I'll probably cut this out. I was just nib-nosing around on your website, and I came across a link that you had put for, and I'm going to quote it, SI and H experiment experiment on two children. Yes. That document that I'm looking at is crazy to read, and I already sent it over to you, Gemma, so when we finish this, you can read it. Okay. I've been skimming through it. What am I looking at? Like, Where was this document from? That's from the release of the MK Ultra files and subsequent to the hearings in 1977. Wow. So the CIA actually released this document? Yes. Wow. Yep. I don't know why I've not come across this. It's nuts, Gemma, when you read it. Because it talks about, similar to what Lynn has been explaining, that they're basically observing how they are uh, creating these children to dissociate. It's crazy. And it looks like an official old document. This one is from 1951. Dr. Ross, yeah, Dr. Ross, Colin Ross told us that when the CIA tried to clean everything up, that they actually somehow overlooked a whole box of files actually now have been released. Maybe it came from there. The International Society for the Study of Trauma and Dissociation is a nonprofit organization interested in advancing the scientific understanding of trauma-based disorders. The document we discussed at the end of this episode, we will go into further detail next week.
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.